let me just read off a few of these movie titles for you um, from what a lot of people refer to as Disney's renaissance period starting in the late 80s and early 90s. Films like Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid, Newsies, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and then in 1994, leading up to that point in the early 90s, Disney was working on another project called Pocahontas. It's a really unique film, and if you haven't seen it, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it in a long time, go back and watch it. And I want you to both watch it with your eyes and your ears, because today we're going to be talking about the scoring of Pocahontas. I'm bringing back my good friend, Brian Vipperts. Brian uh, was involved in some very intensive uh, scoring sessions uh, in New York for the Pocahontas project. He'd actually worked on, on a handful of Disney projects. And we're going to sit down and have a good conversation about Pocahontas, about movie scoring, and life in the recording studio. So I hope you'll stick around with us in the studio, the podcast. Hey guys, it's Brad Sundberg. I am so excited to... Uh, be back face-to-face, -face, uh, I guess 2,600 miles apart, something like that, uh, with, with my good friend Brian Vibberts. Always good to see you, Brian. Always good to be here. So, Brian put something up on Instagram, what was it, about a week ago? Something like that? Yeah, about yeah, that's right. And I uh, just mentioned that, uh, how many, man, I should have my notes in front of me, but how many years ago was Pocahontas? It was 19... 1995, it was released. Huh? 95. So 26 years ago? Mm. Is my math right? Yeah, that should be okay. right. Have I known you for like almost half of my life? That's amazing. <laughs> is that what it is now? <laughs> well, wow. maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. 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 Well, no, not quite, but uh, but but close. So half So Brian puts Brian put something on Instagram about uh, Pocahontas and I'd forgotten that you'd worked on that. So I want to I want to talk about the movie and and the uh, the soundtrack for the movie, but before we get to that, number one, if you do not know, a lot of times when we start these, I kind of go back into the engineer's background, how he or she got into the industry. But we did that back around Christmas when we did uh, Mariah Carey. So I would highly encourage you to go back and uh, re-listen to that podcast. And, and Brian's got a really interesting backstory about how he wound up in the industry. But what I want to do uh, with this is, number one, uh, we always like to talk about recording studios, what recording studios are like, what drew us to them. But on this one in particular, I want to talk about scoring dates and, mm. uh, and, and big orchestral sessions because that's really a different animal. It's totally a different animal. Yeah, there's so many more people involved. It's a, a bigger setup. There's, there's a lot of move, more moving parts to an orchestral session. So before we get to, to the Pocahontas sessions, where, where did you start doing some of the, the big scoring gigs? Well, actually, the Pocahontas session was the, my very first 
orchestral recording session. That was the first. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's why it was, um, you know, th this is such a, a cool thing to talk about because that was my first. And it was uh, myself and Carl Glanville, and the two of us were at the Hit Factory, Studio One, and the big room, you know, on the sixth floor, of course, you yeah. know it well. We were, we had kind of done our homework and, and gotten the information of what was needed for, for a film date. We were a little bit making it up as we went along because both of us, you know, were, it was our first time. So, <laughs> wow. So, so tell people, I mean, I, I, I sort of know the answer to this, but, but just tell people, I mean, how many people were in an orchestra like that or, or how a, an orchestral date is really different. You know, if you're going to work with a, with a band or a Michael Jackson, what's different between that and doing a, a film score? Right. Well, first of all, for the, for the, I mean, the biggest difference really is the amount of people, because obviously we're talking about an orchestra, so it could be 60 to 80 people or, or more. So the amount of people there, but then the other big difference is that it's a union recording date. So there's very strict rules of how long the musicians are there, when they get breaks, and you know, just so you don't, you know, run run the musicians into the ground by you know a normal uh, rock and roll kind of a recording session where it just goes and goes and goes, and usually it's just the band or and the people involved, and it's it's not really a big deal. But with that many people, with the union rules, we usually have a three-hour recording scheduled date, and uh, three hours at a time. But it could be multiple three-hour sessions within one day. But it's based on a three-hour session. And then every hour, they get a 10-minute break. So the biggest part about that is that there, there can't be any mistakes when recording the orchestra. There, there what's called downtime, which is when no recording can get done either because of a technical issue or you know anything that is getting in the way of the recording where you know you can't hit record because of uh, not the ideal situation for for sound some things are out of your control like a helicopter hovering over the scoring stage which <laughs> that's that's happened before to wow. me where it's okay. like okay we have to wait for like a, a couple minutes because there's a you know a, a news helicopter hovering over and that gets in all the microphones or it can be something where there's something not right with a microphone tape machine with pro tools so those kind of technical problems have to be avoided at all costs because okay. it just costs too much money to have all of those musician musicians out there and and not getting anything done so the, right. the, the it's stressful and there's a lot of pressure so that's a the, really a big difference between like you know recording an orchestra and just a band right so I, I, you know, I have pretty good memory of how big Studio One was, but if you've got, so you're saying this was really your first orchestral date, which is amazing that it was yeah. for a, a Disney feature film. And to the best of your memory, the orchestra was approximately 60 piece, 70 piece? Probably around 60. I'm not 100% sure on the breakdown of, you know, the number of musicians, but it was, it was about that. Yeah. Okay. To you know, to people that have never really been in studios, do you put microphones on every single instrument, or how, how does that work 
you know, for, for your job. Yeah. So for microphone placement, it's kind of based on sections instead of like every single person gets a microphone. So above the conductor is called a deca tree. That's three microphones that are like left, center, and right. Those are like 12 feet or so above the conductor's head. That captures the, the really the main sound of the orchestra, uh, those three microphones. And then there's additional microphones that kind of go by section. So it might be the first violins might have a left and right. It might be a left and right front, left and right rear, depending on how many uh, violins there are. And then there might be a left and right viola and left and right celli. And then the woodwinds would all get their own microphone. French horns would have usually have like a left and right. But the brass usually gets both a section, like the brass section left and right. But then there'll be, you know, trumpet one, trumpet two, trombone one, trombone two, like that. So some of them actually have their own microphone, but it's mostly by section. It still ends up being a lot of microphones, you know, at the end of the day. Right. And I don't expect you to remember exactly, but approximately, you know, sitting, and that was that big neve, as I recall, sitting at that big neve in the control room, about how many channels are being used for a big orchestral orchestral date? Well, most of them, because they're not all microphones. Some of them are tracks that are played that were kind of like temporary tracks that might just be like percussion tracks or some just some rhythmic tracks or keyboard tracks that may get replaced later, but may be a part of how they want to hear it in the control room once the real strings are on it. So there's, it's not all microphones, there's other things. So that was a 72 input. I mean, we may have been using all the faders. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to Pocahontas specifically in a few minutes, but but I, I want to kind of dig into this. Just tell me what what a day like that is like. What time do you arrive? How does your, when you walk into an empty studio, well, you probably don't walk into an empty studio the first day of the session, but, but kind of take me through the <clears throat> setup and how long it takes before the orchestra walks in. Yeah. Usually it's set up the day before because the setup is so big. And like, like I say, everything has to be ready. Let's just say it's um, like a 10 to 1. That's the three-hour uh, session. Let's just say um, for this example. So at 10 a.m., everything has to be ready to work, hit record, ready to go. Okay. So uh, to get that right, you you just kind of start thinking, all right, how long is this setup going to take? And you kind of guess the amount of hours, and then you add a few more hours to that. <laughs> and then you think, okay, it's better to set up the day before, not right. coming in at like 3 a.m. or something. Because if there's anything that is uh, some kind of technical issue or some kind of question or something that, that delays the process, you know that at 10 a.m. you have to be recording. So it's better to set up the day before, and it's usually, it can be a six or seven hour setup, or, or longer. I mean, <laughs> for us, that was right. our first one, so it was like probably a full day of setup beforehand, because it was our first time. And you, you've, done, you've done way more scoring work than, than I did, but when you go into a, a studio like Hit Factory Studio One, do, you know, everyone needs a chair. Do they have enough yeah. chairs? Do they have enough music stands? Where is all that stuff? 
Yeah, that that comes really with the experience of working with the orchestra of of you're guessing what's needed before anyone asks for it, because uh, you know someone you know someone asking for a chair. This person wants a different kind of headphone set, and this you know this person wants two stands instead of one music stand, and all those little things just completely stop progress from happening with actually what needs to get done it of course it's important for the musicians to to have the, the things that they want and to get those kind of things uh taken care of for the for the musicians because obviously we need them to be as comfortable as possible but at the same time there's a lot of other things that need to get done right. so you try to get extra chairs out there and usually those are all just in storage in in you know closets and everything around you know around so we have the extra lights. We we set up everything and test everything before anyone's there. We test all the microphones. We do that the, the night before, and we do it the morning of. And we also test the click track because all the musicians are playing to a click track in their in their headphones. And we test. Usually, there's a a movie picture playback. Mm-hmm. So the conductor is actually watching. A piece of the film while conducting the orchestra so we test all of that to make sure it's all working and you know we'll actually go into record to test to make sure that especially with i mean we didn't do it on on pocahontas that was on uh sony 3348 digital tape so it's right. like it's either going to work or not we don't have to test right, a record right. on that but for pro tools now uh we test it to make sure that you know you don't go into record and then Two minutes later, it gives an error like, you know, hard drive full or something. <laughs> so um, so we actually just, with all the microphones open, might be, let's just say, 80 tracks in record. There's nothing happening on the stage, but we just record 80 tracks for like five minutes just to make sure everything's going smoothly. Right. So everything gets tested. Every single thing gets tested because it has to work perfectly starting at at that 10 a.m. downbeat. So, so the day before, I mean, I know I'm, I'm repeating myself, but, but you guys are setting up 60, 70 chairs, 60 or 70 music stands, probably 40 some odd microphones, maybe more, uh, the conductors, uh, podium, the whole, I mean, the, all this stuff doesn't just happen. I mean, it's human. You're, you're, t- you're walking into an empty room and you've got to turn it into basically a, an, orchestra hall that's right because you know two days before there may have been uh, a, a rock band in there with a completely different with a setup. Tree. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so uh you know it's it, the room is always changing even on a scoring stage when where almost all they do is our film scores it still gets completely broken down in between because the amount of violins like the number of violins the number of french horns just the number of instruments changes right so it's better to start fresh i mean the podium will stay there but all the chairs uh are kind of set off to the side and certainly all the microphones because those change depend on on what engineer is coming in so uh, even even in a place that a studio that does film scores all the time you're still walking into an empty room and building it, you know, from scratch. Right, right. Um, and you mentioned, you know, about the conductor watching the movie. Just kind of tell people about that, because I, I think that's interesting. 
Uh, does the whole orchestra see the movie? Do they know what the movie is or care? Or are they just there punching the clock or what? <laughs> uh, they know what the movie is when they're hired. Uh, they will not have seen any of the film. They just come in. And the music either. They, they see the music for the first time when they show up and open up the book. Okay. And, do they have to uh, sign a? They have to sign like an NDA or anything? Yeah, I'm fairly sure that happens with the musicians' union and the and the contractor. Okay. And uh, obviously, everyone involved with with the production is a professional. So right. if if you know if you do something kind of stupid and and you know spill the beans on, on what what you're doing <laughs> that day on social media or something you know, you're not going to get the call the next time. Right, uh, right. So you have to, obviously everyone has to be careful and, and, and everyone signs like an NDA. It doesn't happen on every single uh, production, but some of them are like the Disney ones are, are more likely to have something like that just to protect something that takes years to make. So they don't want any kind of information leaked out about it. But when they're actually recording, the conductor does watch the, the film on the big screen and the uh, musicians are watching the conductor, so okay. they're not watching. They're not watching the film. I mean, oh. they can see it out of the corner of their eye, but they're not watching the film, determining how fast or slow they should go. They're watching the conductor, and right. the and the conductor has already worked with the the people that have written the score to know how fast a segment has to go, how slow, because the conductor knows. I need to end the music at this exact point mm -hmm. in the in the film, so he'll know when you know if if they went a little bit too long or if they went too fast. So there's many variables there for the conductor. He's he, the conductor is the one that's that's you know <laughs> running the ship, right? So and and by this point, and I, I don't want to get too far off topic, but by this point, the movie is in pretty. Is it pretty close to final edit, or have a lot of the edits been done yet? The visual edits? There, yeah, a lot of that has been done, so they know the timing because the music is done towards the end. I, I mean, and on, on a Disney film, the music is such anything that's like a musical. The music is really being done as it goes uh, on on a on a film that this is just it's not that it's not a musical. It's just a, a normal like action film or something. The music is done close to the end, and there's more of the the edits had already have already been done at that point. Right. So uh, with animation, though, some of the animation may not be complete. So there may be drawings that are put in just as as like markers. You know, it's it, everything's still being worked on. Right. Right. So let's. Uh Let's go ahead and kind of shift into Pocahontas. I, my daughter and I actually, uh, Maddie and I actually watched the movie this morning. I, I've seen it before, but I true, truthfully, I hadn't really sat down and watched it in years. Yeah. Um, and you watched it last night? I watched it last night. <laughs> but awesome. I, I probably watched it like, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago. We've, you know, we've been having our, our, movie nights right. <laughs> every once in a while we we you know we have we watch all the disney and, and pixar stuff uh, it's uh they're all they're great films no i know no and yeah. i yeah 
No, I, I, I love, I mean, I, man, I think I just watched, you know, I'm almost embarrassed, but I think I watched Frozen, um, like, you know, a month and a half ago. It mm. was, it was really fun. But Pocahontas, I, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and just look at my notes just a little bit. So Howard Ashman, Howard and, and Alan Menken were really part of what's been referred to as the Disney Renaissance. Which, yeah, that's right. Which started... Well, they, they worked on a, on a movie called Little Shop of Horrors, which I actually saw with Steve Martin. Um, <laughs> Deb and I went and saw that in 1986. And then that's kind of when they hooked up with Disney, and they worked on Oliver and Company in mm. 88, then Little Mermaid in 89. And then in 91, of course, was Beauty and the Beast. And that, right. that just... Yeah, which was huge. Everything just went, went monstrous. Howard Ashman passed away in the spring of 91... Right. And Beauty and the Beast was released in the fall of 91. But uh, they'd already been working on a bunch of songs for Aladdin. So mm-hmm. even though um, Mr. Ashman already passed away, uh, they finished up Aladdin or, or did a lot of the music, which came out in 92. Right. And then Tim Rice came in as well. Right. For, so, uh, yeah. So when, oh, when was, he, Tim Rice, was Tim Rice coming in on Aladdin or did he, where, was he coming in on uh, Lion King? He may have come in. You know what? I think you're right. I think he was Lion King, which was '94. Yeah. And I actually saw Lion King during our um, MJ sessions. I went and watched (laughs) it at uh, Radio City Music Hall. Kind of parallel to that, and I don't mean to bore people with a bunch of dates, but I actually think it's kind of interesting. Alan Menken worked on Newsies in 1991, and he worked on that with Kenny Ortega. Well, Kenny Ortega went on to be Michael Jackson's tour producer uh, for two or three of the shows or mm. of the tour or something like that and Kenny's had an amazing career also then Mencken done Home Alone 2 then Aladdin which was kind of the last one that he did together with Howard Ashman right and then um, Pocahontas in 1995 mm. and what it looks like to me that's when he teamed up with Stephen Schwartz exactly so this is where I want to kind of dig in just a little bit and pick your brain. Were Alan, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz at those sessions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, yeah. They, they would be at all the sessions because they were, I, I mean, uh, I know Alan Menken was also music producer. I don't know if that was Stephen's title as well, if they were both music producers, but I know. I think he's, you know, he's credited with lyrics. Okay, because um, I, I know to... that Alan. I mean, both of them. Actually, both Stephen and Alan, both do music and lyrics. But on, right. in this particular case, it was mostly Alan with the music, Stephen with the lyrics. And for this, I, I know that he wanted someone. You know, Alan wanted someone that was kind of close by, in which Stephen was in New York, both in New York, so they could be able to get together in the same room easier, to be able to work on the music. But during the recording sessions, yeah, they were all there. Okay. I mean, you have to understand when when we're recording the orchestra, there's a full crew there, which well, we that, can well, talk about a little bit later. And but. well, that's ex- that's exactly where I want to go. <clears throat> so we've kind of talked about what a scoring date is like, but now kind of I, I want to know what these sessions were like in particular. Who showed up? How many people? What time? I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the musicians start showing up maybe about thirty minutes before 
uh, the actual downbeat uh, up to maybe an hour before, but not before that. And then and, and usually that, everyone and that's else. You off, but I mean, it, yeah. it actually intrigues me. I mean, you've got to get 60, 70 people and, and they're professionals. I mean, it's not yeah. like hurting a yeah. bunch of seventh graders, but you've got to get them up to the sixth floor. They've got to get a drink, go to the bathroom, get in their seat, say hi to their friend, right. have a sip of coffee. <laughs> and somehow, I mean, does it happen? I mean, at 10 o'clock, are they ready to go? It happens. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, if does anybody come late? I mean, if, if you miss your train or something? Well... Yeah, I mean, there are obviously there's there's instances where that does happen, and then someone may may just you know go into their chair in between a take. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to um, go out in the middle of a take, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that would be bad. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it ha- but it's it, I'd say it's kind of rare. Isn't that amazing? Which is it, it is amazing, you know, with all the just all the traffic. Yeah. You know, both whether you're on the subway or or a taxi cab in New York City or in LA on the freeway you know there's so many variables that are out of your control at you know they're like what you say they're professionals they they time it out and know what to do okay so all so, of them are are like in the uh you know getting ready in the recording room mm-hmm. the actual recording you know studio but in the control room there's a lot of people especially Especially on the Disney, but really on all the films, let's stick to the Disney uh, sessions. For, so for this one, in the control room at the console, of course, there'd be the the main scoring mixer. Um, that was John Richards. Okay. John was well known for doing early, a lot of early James Bond films, so like Goldfinger and like that kind of stuff, wow. and the old Pink Panther movies, and you know okay. he had done a lot of that. You know those movies so that was the first time obviously i worked with with john richards and he's awesome so many good things to say about john but in the control room there was there was john the scoring mixer the recordist which is what my position is called that's the actual that's the person who's actually in charge of recording okay with the remotes you know the microphones and all that there's usually a, a stage assistant who if a microphone's not working they can go run out to the microphone while everyone else can still stay in position. So they can run and change the microphone if needed. There's also a headphone mixer. Wow. They have a, they're, they're like a separate console that that person is in charge of uh, mixing all of the headphones for all the musicians because there's like the, um, the brass and horn players are going to want something different in their headphones than the string players the string players usually only want to click and they don't want to hear themselves they have one they have one headphone on the other their left side there's no headphone there because that's where their instrument is right so they need to hear acoustically they need to hear their instrument to make sure they're in tune okay uh when they're playing the violin so there's a person that is just doing all of the headphone mixes including the headphone mix to the conductor now now i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna ask question um I'm familiar with how it would have been done in 1995. In 2000 and in 2021, does each individual musician get their own mix, or is it still the violins no. get a mix and the still the same? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Still the same. So, the, uh, so the headphone mixer guy or or girl is creating something like probably 12, 14 mixes, something like that. 
Um, I think it's a little less than that, but okay. um, I think it's less than that. But okay. it's still a lot to do, and, and it's not just like you know you you set the headphone mix and then you're done. When it's when it's like a very soft musical passage, they have a big knob usually to bring down the level of the click. No, no, no. Or kidding. else you're okay. going to hear and you know, you have all the like 60 headphones, right? I love that. All, all with this like, yeah. you know, it's, so it's and very, you're going to hear yeah, that. So it's in very the active. They're... Yeah. Yeah. So they have to, re- they have, they're watching the, they're looking at the musical score as well. And when it goes into a very quiet passage, they'll bring the, the click level down for everybody. Okay. And then bring it back up when it's you know more normal volume, and then at the very end when they all just are just like holding the right. last note, sustained. yeah, then then the the click just gets brought down to nothing. I love that. So it's a very active position. That's that's and very important position. You know the the headphone mixer. So is that person? Are they set up in the studio with the orchestra? Or are they in yes. the control room with you? Or no, they're in the studio with the orchestra. Okay, I've, I've so, never worked on I've never worked on a session with a, uh, with yeah. a headphone. I've never yeah, so that's cool. I, I, I'm so um, I will have to say on this session, <laughs> you what on 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 Pocahontas, uh, there were only two of us. So there was you know Carl and I. So we were doing everything, and there was there was no console for doing a mix out in Studio One. Right. So we were like, you know, climbing all over poor John Richards, <laughs> you know, twisting knobs to, oh, so to were, do headphone you're mixes. He- you're doing the headphone mix in real time in the control room. Yeah, we were for po- Pocahontas, but, you know, the, the typical situation is on a real scoring stage that someone else is doing that. Okay. So uh, there's uh, like, you know, uh, there could be three or four staff members doing all these things and there were two of us so we were running around like 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 crazy we had it all under control no i'm but, sure you know and, and and i don't want i don't want to run down tangents too much but i mean you know this this it's a big session for eddie and troy germano and and you know the hit factory why wouldn't they why would not they just get another console and do it the traditional way or was that not i think it was it was just too much I mean, it, this was something that was, uh, you know, kind of new to all of us. There okay. had been string sessions for, for you know, obviously the, the Hit Factory had done, like, smaller string dates where it might be, like, 20 people or something, but not something as big as, you know, a, a big orchestra, you know? So it was kind of new, and, and, and there, you know, it was the bottom line of how much money wants to be spent Right. <laughs> they still need to ha- get a profit, right? Right. So, uh, you know, the, the number of people that that were going to be on the the session that were staff, and and bring in consoles and all that, it just I'm wasn't. I'm just curious. Yeah. So besides that, then okay. So now we have the the scoring mixer, the recordist, the um, you know, well, there were two of us, and we mm-hmm. both, Carl and I, worked out a system where we could easily just take over the other person's a job. Uh, in a split second, while the other one did something else, in other words, right. we knew exactly everything that needed to be done, and we worked. I mean, we were a great team, and we could just take over one thing. You know, if someone had to go change the ta- reels of tape, they could 
you know, someone could go in there while the other person would would do something on the console to get right. ready for it. And we would go back and forth and, and we had it all worked out. There was a studio tech there just in case anything technically went wrong. Okay. <laughs> they were on standby. Right. Um, but then there was the contractor. The contractor is the person who who hires all the musicians. They're told we need, you know, this many violinists, this many horn players, whatever, and they actually get the exact people. So the contractor is there, obviously the conductor, the arranger, the orchestrator. Then, of course, you have the, the writers. You have Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. The copyist is there. The copyist is the person who's actually who's actually ahead of time written out the exact parts, violin one, violin two, for all the players. If there's a big change or if there's a problem where, oh, that was supposed to be you know, in, in another key in this section and they didn't do it like, oh, okay, all right, let everyone give me that music back and we're, let's do that after our next break. And I'll, you know, and the copyist changes it. Wow. So the copyist is there just in case there was some kind of error in the, um, in the copying of parts. I mean, is the cop, I mean, is he or she doing that by hand? I mean, writing musical notes? No, well, that, uh, well, that's done on the computer. If it's something simple, they could, they could just do it by hand as a change or they give a couple changes to you know the conductor will just verbally say okay everyone that has an a in bar right. three that's supposed to be an a flat just mark that in if it's something it. simple like that but usually it's all done by computer but it depends on what has to be done and how quickly <laughs> whether they do it by computer or they just get some things and and hand write uh, you know a few corrections yeah, I mean, so, I'm, just, I'm, I'm thinking back to 1985 and what we had like, you know, MacBook 180s or something or whatever they were called back then. And <laughs> it, I can't imagine making a change that fast and printing out 60 yeah, sheets. Yeah, but right. Yeah. Exactly. So then the music editors are there as well. Um, those are the people that are have been in control of the music editing and the music throughout the film. They need to know what's happening with, you know, if there's let's say f we do the song or, or cue, it's called a musical cue, three times, which one was the best? And is like, take one better in the beginning and take three is better at the end and they'll put those together later. Okay. Then the music editor would need to know that. And that's also my job as the recordist to also take notes and, and write all that out just in case the music editor miss something along the way there's a lot going on in the session so right any one person usually has a you know some kind of backup uh, where someone else is doing helping out with the same information so that's a lot of people in the control room right so i mean i i, I wasn't keeping notes but I'm a, it sounds like there were probably f approximately 15 ish yeah, because then you have those people's, you know, you have Alan Menken's assistant, you have Stephen Schwartz's assistant, you right. have, you right. know, those people um, that in case they need something, you know, obviously they can't leave the control room. So, right. you know, those those people are vital to the, the session as well to have it just keep running smoothly. And you've got so there's a lot a of people mysterious people from Disney or, you know, just <laughs> yeah. staring yeah. at a clipboard and uh, yeah. And sometimes it's fun because sometimes the animators are actually there. Oh, wow. To see it. And that's really cool. That's happened, you know, several times throughout the years. So um, for the Pocahontas session, uh, I'm not 100% sure whether the animator 
if they were there or not. My guess is probably not because this was in New York. Right. Uh, most of the Pocahontas uh, soundtrack was done in L.A. So this was towards the tail end of the Pocahontas recordings. And when I worked on it, it was in 1993. Oh, really? Yeah. It's okay. interesting okay. because okay. if you look at the timelines, and you kind of said this before, if you look at the timelines of these, these Disney films, they're all overlapping. Oh, yeah. And um, like uh, for Pocahontas was being made at the same time as The Lion King. It was Pocahontas was already started when Aladdin was released in '92, right? And even at that same time, Mulan was in pre-production. Now Mulan didn't come out until '98, right? You know, so it's like five years earlier. That's like the very, very beginning when they're talking about okay, what is the story going to be? There's no music at all at that point. There's no, there's they're trying to figure out characters and the story. And that's very early on, but you know, like all of those are happening at the same time. So you know, when you're talking about you know like Pocahontas, and then after that was Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then Hercules, which I worked on all three of those actually. Oh wow! And then and then Mulan. So those are all overlapping because they all take years to do. But that's what... and, and that's why it, that's another impo- uh, a point of of why this the Disney sessions especially are different than normal scoring dates or or regular you know pop or rock and roll bands is that the note taking has to be exact right because if something is going to take three or four years you know similar to michael jackson session you have to know oh a year and a half when we worked on that last you know what was the setting for or what microphone did we use you know uh, and you you have to be able to get that information so for the disney sessions there's a lot of exact note taking that is done because you never know when something may be used on the final version or or they need to go back and fix a few words there's a lot of things that change if there's a a change in the story right or anything like that then some some parts might need to be redone well so and they want it to sound the same so they would have to uh, have those notes to make it be like the same as if it was done the day before. Okay. So, so your your notes, your documentation would be thorough enough that you could basically bring that same orchestra back a year later. And, I mean, this in terms of which microphones were used, where they were placed approximately, sketches, what, you know, which uh, channel got bust to which track... I mean, all all that stuff is part of your responsibility. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So by the end of it, you, you've just got a you've got a notebook, like a phone book full of notes. Yeah, that's right. Were you doing stuff on a laptop at that point, or was it all handwritten? No, that was all handwritten. Okay. No, I don't. I don't even think I. No, I. I didn't own a laptop at that point. <laughs> but now, now it is done with a laptop. Right. Because right. it's all done with, uh, you know, something you can print out a PDF file. Of right. all the takes and all that so but there's still a lot that's done by hand along the way because there's things that that change and then of course the the console has a feature where it kind of like uh electronically takes a picture of where all the knobs are and then you can recall that by just uh you know recalling the file 
right. and it'll it'll show you where all the knobs were at that point. So you can you can store electronically store that information. So okay. it all kind of goes together. So you you did say something in all of that that uh, I, that I didn't know, or at least I'd forgotten that you were actually doing these string dates in '93, which would have mm-hmm. been somewhere between 18 and 24 months before the movie was released. Which kind of goes against what we were saying a few minutes ago, that the music is usually done at the very end. But this scoring was done probably in the middle of the actual film production. For, uh, for anything that's a musical, yeah, it's, it's being done along the, along the way. Okay. So yeah. if, it's, if it's another kind of film, then it would be done more towards the end. Okay. Oh, yeah, you, you did say that. Okay. Yeah. And you are, I, I think I know the answer to this next question, but as far as the you know the the main songs uh colors of the wind and, and things like that were those done in la or were they done with you or talk about that yeah it was done in a mixture of of places some of it was in new york some of it was in la the sessions that i was on was just with the orchestra okay. for for pocahontas but i have been involved with other you know like actual songs in other disney productions but but for pocahontas it was the the orchestral recording okay and and it's funny when i looked at the you know the the credits of the recordings of pocahontas the film i don't know if i really realized this until recently that a lot of the people that i know now that i would later work with when i came to la were involved with the same production and it's it's i mean it's there's so many well first you know there was carl uh and i in new york but also tom cadley uh was in new york and and we did uh sessions together as well with the orchestras but tom hardesty who now i you know work with at warner brothers scoring stage he worked on it paul wertheimer andrew page all of them who i would later work with worked on this it's kind of strange that later on i connected with more of these people uh, including Bruce Botnick, who, of course, is famous for a lot of his recordings, sure. but especially The Doors. I think you and I have talked about this before, but at the end of the day, uh, the music industry is actually kind of small. I mean, you, yeah. after you've been in it for a while, you pretty you kind of start seeing the same people. I mean, it's not very likely they're going to fly a New York orchestra to L.A. to do a string date. No. You're going to no. cross paths with, with uh, you know some of the producers, arrangers, things like that. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, obviously, all those same people that would have been in California were in New York. All those people that were in the control room that I was talking about, you know, the the um, you know the orchestrators and the, the producers and the uh, music editors and all those would have all come from L.A. They just follow the production. Okay. So, um, one of the things I don't mean to keep going back to to the documentary about Howard Ashman, but one of the things that was kind of implied in that documentary was that Mr. Ashman, he had a house in upstate New York, and, and this was during the, I'm kind of going back in time, but I think during the Little Mermaid Beauty and the Beast sessions, and he was actually too, he was too sick to travel to LA. And it was mm-hmm. kind of a, it was a, a nod from Disney of how important he was that they actually moved that entire project to New York. And I thought it was kind of interesting that with Pocahontas, I know Mr. Ashman wasn't involved, and I'm not, I'm not trying to draw a direct parallel, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Maybe they started liking the New York style or the New York studios or something, 
because so much of the early Disney stuff was done in L.A. Right. But yeah, yeah, and then and then, yeah, because like what I had said with with some of those other films, because after Pocahontas, for me, for you know, Hunchback, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Tarzan, Emperor's New Groove, all of those I worked on in New York. You know, Emperor's New Groove is like one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I absolutely love that movie. So we might have to do a whole segment just on that at some point. We can, we can do that. We that, can do that in the future. <laughs> that, that is an absolute classic in, in Brad Sundberg world. So how long, kind of give me an idea of how long this project took for you. <laughs> for not long because really? I, I because it was at the tail end of the musical production or that's what I was told at the time it was only it was less than a week seriously yeah yeah all because, the I mean, orchestrations like, like, uh, no no because uh, a lot of it was done in LA beforehand right okay. and now we were adding to it and now in New York so there wasn't uh, a, you know most of it had already been done so now we're just adding more, you know, things to it, which is like a full day of recording. But, you know, sometimes there'll be a session, uh, a day that might just be three hours. You come in and record for three hours. Um, that's not what we're doing with Pocahontas, but that does get done sometimes when there's really not that much music that needs to be recorded yet. <laughs> they'll still do a three-hour session. But there might be... Um, two three-hour sessions in one day and then the next day come back to another two three-hour sessions like that okay mm. so, so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna use a word i'm not trying to sound like a know-it-all but i know in a lot of these sessions the segments of music are sometimes called like a musical cue right mm-hmm. yes so in a, in a musical cue it's not really a song but it might just be the raccoon running up the tree or something and kind of a little violin mm-hmm. climb and some of those cues might just be like 10 seconds 13 seconds most of the time it's uh most of the time it's at least 20 or 30 seconds but um more likely it's more like two minutes one and a half minutes okay um they usually try to make it a a longer segment of music or okay. else it's a lot of starting and stopping and and which wastes time. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, so if they can make it, yeah. So if they can make it be like a little bit of a longer piece, I mean, it, it all depends on what's written, obviously. Right. But they, they usually have it be a minute and a half, two minutes. But there can be longer ones that go five minutes. You know, it's a. But that's not typical. Okay. So but I one mean, thing that's interesting in, in Pocahontas is, of you know, when you talk about a minute and a half or two minutes of music you you know people might think oh well, that's pretty simple you know <laughs> it's a that's not that difficult right from a writing standpoint but actually there's a lot of in there's there's a lot of detailed work that went into this and in every disney film really but talking about pocahontas i know that alan menken studied a lot of the the baroque music for songs that were going to be associated with the with the British settlers because it would have been like music of of kind of like that time period right so he was kind of studying that kind of writing and then he would put that style of writing into what he was writing in the in the film they they tried to be as authentic as possible with the Native American music 
with you know eastern tribes the uh algonquins as opposed to west coast native american indian tribes right. they really tried to get it to be you know that the virginia area where the the film is based really tried to make it as exact as they could so you might say oh it's a two-minute piece a two-minute musical cue but there's been a lot that goes into that and a lot of thought to really make it be as authentic as possible to tell the story in the best way so I, I was telling, I was talking to a friend of mine saying that yeah, I was going to be talking to you specifically about Pocahontas, and she asked that question, and I'm not, I'm not going to word it quite as eloquent, eloquently as she did, but, uh, and you, you just answered it, but yeah, so, so Mencken actually did do some research, so some of the music related to the, the Native Americans is as authentic as, as reasonably possible. Right. And, and, you know, uh, that, that's for the music side, for Alan. But Stephen Schwartz was, was doing a similar thing, researching uh, Native American ways of, like, thinking and how they would express themselves to get that into the, the lyrics. And, he, he, and I know he was studying uh, Native American poetry really? from the, the time period and everything. And those are the things that people just don't know that goes into it it really gets the research gets really in depth so they can try to be so in other words instead of saying uh you know you recently uh watched the film when he's talking about pocahontas he doesn't he doesn't actually say pocahontas he says my daughter come here my daughter that's a that's that's a, a a an easy example of how they would would talk within the tribe at that time period interesting that's, a, that's an easy example you no, know that's, that's really obvious like oh yeah so i mean i've yeah i've done my research on on good old wikipedia i mean you, know, you, you hope for the best but <laughs> with, with what you're talking about did did mr mankin and mr schwartz talk about this in the control room or did you just kind of glean it after the fact or i'm just curious no, this is kind of after the fact uh, that I learned. And, and just, um, you know, I've worked with, with both of them in several uh, productions. So, you know, Pocahontas being the first. But I know the, the lengths that they both go and, and the whole entire team. I mean, even the animators, everybody to, that really go into this. So I, they weren't talking about this kind of thing in the control room that I remember. Sometimes those come up. If they're talking about a certain wooden flute or something that they're using, they may have said, "Oh yeah, I, I you know discovered that that was the flute from that, you know that that Virginia area or wow. something. You know something like that may come up. In I don't remember a conversation like that, but something like that could come up in in where it's like, oh, this is a special instrument that we specifically wanted for this. You know, but even you know even with the with the animators of drawing what would become Pocahontas. I think, I think there's only one real, it's not a picture, but it's like a drawing of right. the real Pocahontas. That, and so they were trying to, the animators were trying to figure out what she would look like. And they, you know, had several people that inspired the look, including, which, and this is kind of cool, that the, um, the animators went to Virginia, to Jamestown, and they actually, one of the animators met two descendants of Pocahontas. Wow. From the two of them, he started getting ideas of how he would draw the face. Right. 
That's very, I mean, that's, first of all, that's amazing <laughs> that, yeah, that, 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 that even happened, right? right? You know, go. it shows you the, like, the, the lengths that they go to really make it as accurate as possible. And then, of course, it, it changed a little bit. I know that Naomi Campbell was another, like, her face was used a little bit. I know there's a little bit of, like, Asian influence that, that came into the drawings, and so it kind of, you know, changes along the way but uh i know the two descendants the names were um shirley shirley little dove and Devi white dove hmm. if anyone you know is wanting to know the exact information of of who you know he met and talked to okay. in virginia but another thing you know pocahontas did there's a lot of firsts that that pocahontas did which we should mention is that uh it was the first disney princess of color Mm-hmm. who was the lead character yep so of course uh, before that jasmine in aladdin was actually the first you know disney princess of color but it, it, the show wasn't about her it was about aladdin right. she was a secondary character so this was the first in that regard but it was also the first disney feature animated feature animation that um was a real person it wasn't based on a story or folklore or this was a real person an historical figure what you telling me that pinocchio's not not <laughs> oh man brad i don't want to break it to you but <laughs> <laughs> you know i i, I have i have in my notes that uh, this was the movie that you know had the first female uh, of color that, that was the lead yeah, but yeah, you actually got me with with with, with the second part. There was a real there was a real person. So, right, so, right, that's cool. So, again, I'm I'm basing this on on Wikipedia, but uh, and I know I'm saying that wrong. It's just Wikipedia. But um, Maddie and I were talking about it this morning, and and Maddie was just a well, she was yeah, she was even born yet when uh, when Pocahontas came out. But I was telling her kind of about the Disney Renaissance and how, you know, the movie the Disney movies when I was young were like, you know, Herbie and the Apple <laughs> Dumpling Gang. <laughs> you didn't really burst through yeah. the theater doors, you know, to go see those. And uh and then I saw just both these of those. <laughs> these um, yeah, the love bug. Then these I mean, yeah. but then it's just like bang, bang, little mermaid, beauty, Aladdin pocahontas yeah. but when you go back and you read the reviews th there were there were some mixed reviews yes and you yeah. know some of them were saying that the historical accuracy was was pretty thin at best right. uh, <laughs> yes well you know and and yeah that's it's it's a tough one but if you think about the information that they were going with the, the you know the people that are writing the story and the animators pocahontas was was really around 11 or 12 years old exactly when she met john smith yeah and it was not a romantic and john smith was 28 yeah there was no yeah there wasn't there's no evidence of a romantic relationship there so they don't i mean if they want to stay accurate they don't want to have like john smith be 28 and she's 12 right, i mean right. that that doesn't no, work and, and, and also john smith from all accounts of what was written, was not a very likable person. He was very rough and, and you know, and I think there's one line that, that kind of shows an inkling of that in the movie where in the very beginning when he goes to save someone off the boat, 
And then he comes in, he would be like, well, you would do the same for me, right? And they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> I think that was a little bit of a, you know, that was kind of like really the, the real John Smith character. Like right, he wasn't right. really liked that much. But no, they had I'll to be, change I'll... that for the story, you know, because or else it would be it wouldn't be the same a documentary no no i understand yeah and so having you know what what little bit of i didn't mean to come at that from a negative standpoint but it was more it's a great disney story and and i think the fact that it was led by a strong a very strong uh you know woman of of color Mm, and uh you know who who was the the key character um, even in the even in the reviews, it, it kind of it kind of, or I should say, in the recap of the reviews, it kind of said that, yeah, it had a few hiccups and it had a few negative reviews, but overall, people saw that you know this is a really powerful, cool movie. You know, they're trying to tell a a, a message with with some Disney, you know, romance kind of sprinkled on the top. Um, it's interesting uh, that you may have know this already is that um, the. The Disney chairman at that point, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, when he was talking to to the you know people in the in these production meetings, you know before the movie was out, they're working on it and they're getting people hyped up about it. Right. He even predicted this is in June of '92, from what I've read. I wasn't there. <laughs> uh, he predicted that Pocahontas would be a, you know a commercial hit and that li- the Lion King was kind of experimental. He didn't even know if people would really want to see that, and it was probably less likely to succeed. He, but he was saying the Pocahontas will will be the one that's going to be similar to Beauty and the Beast, where Beauty and the Beast got nominated for an Academy Award and all that, and he he wanted this to be the winner, mm-hmm. you know, of that. And and it's interesting that because of him saying that multiple times, there was certain animators that were very good animators left the Lion King production and went on the Pocahontas production. No kidding. Um, because they're like, well, you know, and. And that's one thing that I don't know how that works, how the animators are actually assigned to specific productions. I, I kind of thought they were just given the project, but right. evidently there must be some kind of decision on their side, the animators' side, of what project they may want to be involved with. I don't, I don't know how that works, no. but I thought, thought that was interesting. And, and I have a feeling an animator that would tell you a story from the the days of working under Walt versus the days of working under Katzenberg versus the days of working under Iger would probably be three very different uh, uh, working environments, but not my not my department, thankfully. Um, it's sure. interesting that you were only on the scoring sessions for about a week, give or take. Mm-hmm. The L.A. sessions. Now, number one, I want to encourage people watch the movie but today was really the first time that i watched it and i mean i listened to the music and it's i mean you always hear the music and you know i I consider myself to be kind of tuned into things like this it's an amazing score and there's so much there's like a huge choral part or a choir or something that were you involved in any of that or was that all la that must have been in la because we were we didn't have any choir it okay. Was, it was all uh, just the instruments. Okay. So, so not not to bring it back down to dollars and cents always, but you and I have kind of talked about this in regards to other sessions. How 
how much do you think a, a full scoring date at the Hit Factory with 60, 70 musicians? <laughs> I kind uh, of have a number in my head, but what, what does it cost to do that for a day? I would, uh, I would easily say around 50000 that's amazing. For three hour for three hours for three and and you're doing two so a day. So if you do, yeah, that'd be maybe a hundred thousand. Amazing. Um, and that's, that's a in... that's a that's a fairly good estimate. Right. Um, yeah. I mean the the whole production was like fifty five million that it cost to make. Right. Pocahontas. Yeah. So in the big in the big scheme of things. Right. And they and according to uh, my buddies over at Wikipedia, it grossed three hundred forty six million. Right. Um, so they did fine, mm. you know. No, yeah. Yeah. No, no one's out, uh, you know, trying to pay off IOUs for the orchestra dates. <laughs> so for a week, you know, close to a week. I mean, it's it's probably around a quarter million dollars, something like that. Yeah, could be. For, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And that was just a portion of right the scoring for that movie. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the whole music budget. Now, was now, now you're still involved in in uh, you know movie scoring to this day is it yes are there still a lot of them that are still doing the full big orchestra or has a lot of it gone more to uh, synths and samples a, a mixture of both it, it okay. depends on the budget that's given for um, for the TV show or for the for the film most of the time it's it's a real orchestra okay but then you know if there's times where it's it's a mixture of both okay. where it's a mixture of um you know uh, sounds from the computer and uh the real orchestra all right so i'm not, I'm yeah. not trying to i mean there's nothing the... there's nothing that beats the the sound of the orchestra and that's the if i was to just kind of give a few single words about an orchestral session one would be which we talked about intense <laughs> because it's stressful right. Another, I would say, is just beautiful because the sound of the orchestra, all those musicians playing at the same time in the same room, and, and it sounds beautiful in the control room, right? but nothing like what, you know, you go into the actual room where that energy is, is, is all happening musically. It's just, it's magical. It's, it's special. It's beautiful hmm. sound. And, you know, we're, you know, obviously we're capturing it the best we can in the control room with the microphones and it sounds great there but being in the room uh, just because you know the people are you know several feet from you playing the right. instruments it's incredible so no matter how you slice it and i'm not trying to predict what's going to happen in five ten years but but big orchestral dates are they're going to be around for a while i mean there's yeah. just yeah there i think there's so. no way a computer can emulate <laughs> as soon as yeah. i say well, that they, you, they come close for sure there's uh, a certain that human right. element to it that you just can't get out of the computer. Well, something else we should uh, mention now. After the film was was done, they had the largest premiere in history <laughs> in June of '95 in Central Park. In Central Park, right? Yeah, over a hundred. Well, it's estimated around a hundred thousand. But Mariah Carey was there. Michael Eisner was there. And, and it was they showed the film on a huge screen and then after Vanessa Williams performed were you there so no no I, I did I didn't, I didn't 
<laughs> wait, wait, let's see. June, uh, June of 95. I don't know what I was doing. I was probably in the studio on some other session. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting that the official, the official release was on June 16th, which, was, which I guess is supposed to be the 400th birthday of Pocahontas. Okay, right. Um, yes, I did the, read that. I don't know how they got... I don't know if they're just talking about the year, or because I don't think anyone knows the exact date right. that she was born. I think they're going by the year. But interesting is, is that uh, Michael Jackson History was released that same exact day, June 16th, oh, no 1995. Kidding. Yeah. I, okay. And uh, so at one, at one point in, in July... Michael Jackson's history was blocking Pocahontas from being number one. So, so history was number one on the on the Billboard charts, and Pocahontas was number two. And then the next week, Michael Jackson was number one. Pocahontas was number two. But in the third week, <laughs> Pocahontas took over Michael Jackson's history. Oh, that's awesome! I did yeah. I did and, not and, know and that. So Pocahontas became number one, the soundtrack, um, and then Michael Jackson's history became number two. (laughs) So it was like that battle. But it's interesting that, you know, obviously our our, uh, history and with history. (laughs) I I, I worked on one of them. You worked on both of them. So so cheers to you. Well, that's cool, man. Uh, It's a beautiful film. Yeah, it is. And again, if people, I mean, I don't know who has not seen Pocahontas. But watch it again and listen to that soundtrack. It it is so thunderous and it's it's just beautiful. It's a really really great sounding yeah. movie. Yeah, and one and one of the uh, songs that was actually taken out of the film was later put back in, and that's probably uh, that's the version that I have. That it's it's the the tenth. I have the tenth anniversary edition, and and they put that scene back in. Which is the love song between the two? Is that uh, the the night before John Smith was supposed to be killed? Is that the because I actually got asked this question the the song maybe it was in the stage production uh, where John Smith is tied to a post or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, man, it, it's like it's literally like you're reading my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I literally have that question about uh being tied up to a pole um if i never knew you that's right that that was in the movie originally and what people might not know is that a lot of films are tested in front of audiences that know nothing about the film they're not just normal everyday people will see an advanced uh, showing of the film right and then they'll rate different things did you like this character was this character can you relate to that character or um you know is this character would you say they're more good more evil what was your favorite part of the movie what was the part you didn't like so that song didn't really test that well Hmm. so they took it out even alan menken uh, has said in, in interviews that as he watched the film as they were working on it he was like i'm not sure if that's gonna go over that great for because it's a little bit more for an older audience and it right. might just get lost in in who's watching it and so he was on the fence as well but it, it was taken out and then for the anniversary edition it was it was kind of put back in it's so interesting you just use the word older because I, I guess i'm guilty as charged 
I mentioned Frozen a few minutes ago, and I watched Frozen, and I, I hope I don't get any haters out there, but it was okay. You know, I mean, it was... <laughs> oh, boy. It's one of the biggest Disney... Ones. Oh, I know. No, no, no. Oh, I, I'm here not, not going to trash on it at all. I'm just <laughs> saying that Pocahontas had more of a grown-up feel to me. Yeah, because it was it was really more. It's it a heavy theme. More of, yeah, it, it it's yeah, exactly. It's choosing between her people and traditions, and or or not. And yeah, there's a lot of several heavy themes going on there. Yeah, and no, I, and yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm just having fun. I'm I'm not trashing on Frozen. <laughs> I mean, good grief! What it's it's like a billion dollar. Uh, that's uh, right. Yeah, you can't you can't go to Disney. I live you know two miles from Disney World, and you can't go to Disney World without you know twenty four hours a day frozen something. But yeah, it's just it's just it's interesting to me that uh, Pocahontas was a it was a pretty heavy, uh, yeah, pretty heavy topic. Mm. So and the song "Colors of the Wind" was one of the very first ones that was written for it, which. Usually, when the, the like the main theme of the song, like the big song, you know, right, is usually written more like later on in the production, not the first song <laughs> mm-hmm. done. And so I that was they were off to a good start right away. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always good seeing you, my friend. Any other any final thoughts about uh, the, the Pocahontas project? I think we've covered quite a bit. <laughs> with it you know if if anyone hasn't seen it recently after you know hearing what we've discussed today take a look at it again and you might see it in a different light yeah you know with everything that uh with how the production and the animators and the music how it's all done it's interesting to look at it again with those things in mind just watching it still as a film but now with more information about it right it's uh it's a it's kind of a fresh look and, and listen to it. I mean, I think a lot of people, we live in the day of YouTube and documentaries and everything. So people have more insights about how, how movies were made than they did 30 years ago. Mm. But the, the music, the recording, everything about it, and I'm not just blowing smoke, but, but it, it's, an, it's a great sounding movie. Uh, the mm. music in it is just so well produced and uh, just carries you from scene to scene. So it's, yeah. it, it's a really great work. Go watch it. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, always good seeing you. Stay safe. Thank you so much, Brad. One of these days we got to do this in the same room. Yes, but, exactly. Uh, for, for now, we do the best we can. So. <laughs> All right. All right, my friend. I will talk Until to you soon. Until the next time. All right. Take care. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Theme music performed by Buddy Nuanez. Artwork by Andy Healy. Studio Electronics provided by Golden Age Project. And Studio Acoustics provided by Acoustic Sciences Corporation. My name is Brad Sunberg. Thanks so much for hanging out with us in the studio.